Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage or protect intellectual property. My name is Chris Hall. I'm a partner and trademark attorney and solicitor at Appleyard Lees. Today, I'm joined by my fellow partner and solicitor, Bill Lister, uh, to look back at some of the significant IPU-related legal disputes that have taken place in 2022, and to discuss the implications these cases might have on the enforcement of UK intellectual property rights in 2023 and beyond. So without further ado, Bill, are you going to look at the first case that we are going to analyse today? The first case I'm going to look at is in trademarks, and it concerns the trademarks of those well-known discounter retail supermarkets, Lidl uh, and Tesco. This was a kind of trademark infringement uh, dispute between these two supermarkets, which actually is still ongoing. Question is, does Tesco's use uh, of its logo for its club card prices infringe Lidl's wordless logo. Now, for those who frequent discount supermarkets, you might be aware uh, that both have got a very similar logo. They both consist of a square. They both consist of a blue background in a very similar Pantone, if not identical, Pantone blue. Tesco was using a sign which was like a yellow sun in the middle of its square, whereas Lidl uses the same yellow sun, albeit a slightly different shade of yellow, uh, which is bounded by red with the word in its very distinctive font, Lidl. Uh, L-I, which is a a highly stylized version of the I in red, uh, D-L. Now, uh, Lidl alleged uh, that Tesco's use uh, of this square infringed Lidl's wordless logo. Tesco counterclaimed that Lidl's uh, trademark was filed in bad faith. Uh, This counterclaim was initially struck out by the High Court, uh, but uh, an appeal uh, was granted by the Court of Appeal. And uh, Tesco uh, is now therefore allowed to run an argument at trial on the basis that it had real prospects of success. Now, to go into a bit more detail about the claim, Tesco had been using its uh, square logo since September 2020. Uh, It had been posted on its stores and in its windows um, and was used for club card prices. It also had a second trademark, exactly the same square, but without the words. Uh, Lidl had alleged that this use infringed their registered trademarks, uh, which it had been using since 1991 and latterly without any words in it since 2000 and in colour. It also alleged what's called passing off uh, and uh, further copyright infringement uh, of the artwork in the design. Tesco denied these claims and it issued its counterclaim for a declaration of invalidity uh, of the registration of the wordless mark and in the alternative uh, revocation on the ground of five years non-use. With regard to invalidity on the grounds of bad faith, uh, in its counterclaim Tesco sought to argue that the wordless mark had been registered as a purely defensive trademark, that is to bar anybody else out uh, of using a similar square, and that Lidl had no intention ever of using the wordless square in the course of trade, but instead wished to secure a wider legal monopoly of trademark protection. Uh, Little strikeout application, uh, which was granted uh, in the High Court, uh, was then overturned on appeal. This is of relevance to many trademark owners uh, who have a 
trademark, which is the use of their name inside a, a logo. And there are trademark owners who have either tried to or already thought about registering just the background logo without their name inside. So that if anyone else were to use their logo, but with their own name, they would nevertheless infringe. We've yet to see what the High Court does now that the Court of Appeal uh, have sent it back to the High Court for final determination. Thanks, Bill. So I think that's very much a let's watch this space, but already proving to be quite an exciting case and one that are no doubt hit headlines, trademark headlines at least, uh, in 2023. I'm going to look at another uh, trademark case that was relatively recent actually this year, is that of Lifestyle Equities and Amazon UK Services. Now this case uh, relates the sale of goods via Amazon's US website and considers the jurisdictional implications for UK rights holders. Now here, Lifestyle uh, are the owners and exclusive licensee of UK and EU trademarks for the signs Beverly Hills Polo Club, which is registered in relation to a range of goods, uh, including clothing. And purely by coincidence, there's a third party, uh, commercially unrelated to Lifestyle, who owns corresponding trademarks in the US, um, and it sells products under that mark in the US in a perfectly legitimate manner. Um, Now, I'll refer to those as the US branded goods. It came to light that Amazon was in fact also selling the US branded goods to UK and EU customers um, without Lifestyle's consent. Lifestyle then alleged trademark infringement against Amazon, so not against the US owner of the corresponding marks, claiming that Amazon was facilitating the advertisement, offers for sale and sales of the US branded goods to consumers in the UK and the EU. Now, the High Court initially found against Lifestyle, holding that Amazon.com was primarily a US website. On appeal, the key question was whether the listings of the US branded goods from Amazon's US website actively targeted, now the important term here is targeted, UK and EU customers. Then it went to the Court of Appeal, who, interestingly, overturned the High Court's decision uh, with Lord Justice Arnold finding that Amazon had infringed Lifestyle's trademarks. Businesses that operate globally should be highly cognizant of the risks associated with cross-border sales and the potential liability for trademark infringement in foreign jurisdictions, including perhaps looking at geo-blocking options or other measures to prevent active sales in those territories. This is a particularly interesting case because it looks at when Amazon are targeting a UK consumer. Now, I, I wonder if this will perhaps open the floodgates for future claims Uh, Again, one that we will have to watch and see. Now, over to you, Bill, for the the next case. Okay, well, I'm now going to move from trademarks uh, to a related cause of action called passing off. And passing off has often been uh, uh, described um, as an infringement of an unregistered trademark. So for every registered trademark, there is always an associated goodwill. Very recent case, it was decided as recently uh, as September of 22. And for those who may know, um, 
uh, AU is a premium vodka brand, which was launched in 2015. So they've got seven years traction uh, on their name. And they've traded with notable success uh, since 2019, when it launched a range of flavoured vodkas, comprising vodkas sold in gold metallic bottles with a label bearing the brand AU79. NE10 vodka was launched in August 2022. And it also sold its products uh, in metallic bottles, although with a different colored bottle depending on the flavor of the vodka. Within two weeks of NE10's vodka's launch, uh, following some preliminary correspondence between solicitors, passing off proceedings were issued by Ovodka, alleging that the get-up of NE10 vodka's bottles was deceptively similar. Now, the reason that they brought proceedings for passing off and not trademark infringement is perhaps obviously they didn't have at that stage a registered trademark. And very often what parties do who have a good name, a good brand name, is they will trade for maybe a few years under that name, relying on passing off. And then when the mark has obtained enough credibility uh, as uh, implying goodwill, then they will apply for the trademark. The judge in the case was asked to hear an application by Ovodka for an interim injunction to prevent any 10 vodka from continuing sale until the trial. So, in this case, uh, although the judge did not doubt that Ovodka had a reputation in the appearance of its products, the conclusion was that there was no prima facie evidence of actual deception. The judge said that any misrepresentation must be a causative factor in a consumer's decision to purchase. It's not proven uh, if some people merely wonder if there was a connection between the two, there's actually got to be a deception. They've got to believe there actually is or really might be rather than scratch their chin and think, ooh, those two look similar. I, I, I wonder if one is connected somehow with the other. He therefore dismissed Ovodka's application for an interim injunction. And in doing so, the judge concluded the following. One, he concluded that there was plainly a serious issue to be tried in passing off. They were both using um, metallic coloured bottles. Secondly, he decided that the balance of convenience favoured any 10 vodka because if AU vodka won at trial, damages under the injunction would largely compensate them. Whereas as any 10 vodka had already launched, it was unlikely they could be adequately compensated if wrongly injuncted. That is because they'd launched their product, they'd spent a fortune on, on marketing it. And if they were then injuncted, all that money would then be wasted and it'd be almost impossible to relaunch two years down the line. And he concluded, thirdly, and this is perhaps uh, maybe slightly obvious, um, that uh, much would turn on the actual evidence of deception or confusion, uh, which was which was brought at trial. So that's a case worth thinking about if somebody were to infringe your branding, which you are not actually yet registered as a trademark. I'm now going to jump to copyright infringement. And this was a case called Shazam Productions Limited uh, against Only Fools, the Dining Experience Limited. This was the first time that the UK courts had recognised that a purely fictional character could be protected by copyright in its own right, quite independent from the script. But in this case, the judge was looking at whether, as it were, the character jumped out of the page and the character had a life of its own so far as copyright was concerned.
And following this decision, the combined features uh, and traits of the uh, famous Delboy, including his dodgy dealings, are in themselves, independent of the literary copyright in the script, literary works for the purposes of copyright. Now, to talk about the background for a few moments, uh, Shazam Productions, which are called Shazam, um, owned the intellectual property rights um, to the television comedy uh, Only Fools and Horses. Um, Shazam issued legal proceedings against Only Fools, the dining experience, and against others in relation to that company's unlicensed dinner theatre experience, which they called Only Fools, the Kushti dining experience. Um, the interactive themed dining experience incorporated characters and a pub, which feature in the Only Fools and Horses television show. Shazam alleged that it infringed its copyrights in its script, in its characters, and the opening theme song. What the court decided was, was really as follows. It found that copyright was infringed if, without authorization, someone used such a work or a substantial part of the work uh, without the permission of the copyright owner. In this case, the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court found that Shazam owned copyright in the scripts for the television sitcom as a dramatic work, as well as in the character of Del Boy, who was taken as an example, uh, as a literary work. Further, by using the names, mannerisms, catchphrases and fullback stories of some of the main characters of Only Fools and Horses, the defendant's copying and use of these elements far exceeded the threshold required for a finding of infringement. The judge also found that the marketing of the defendant's show amounted to passing off, which we discussed in the, in the previous case. Given the significant commonalities between the television sitcom and the defendant's show, consumers would believe that the defendant's show was authorised or connected uh, to Shazam. And clearly, that would cause financial damage because, uh, as we know Shazam licensed these rights to third parties and such third parties would cease to take such licenses or would complain about the licenses if they thought that uh, the dining experience were getting it for free. So uh, the judge found that the humour of the defendant show came from the material taken from the Only Fools and Horses television show and its purpose was not to mock the show. The defendant show did not therefore constitute a parody. Now, this is a really interesting case because for the first time you have copyright existing quite outside uh, the usual areas of copyright defined in the Copyrights, Designs and Patents Act. That is, in a character leaping out of the page. And it's interesting to see how television companies and radio companies use this uh, in the future. Thanks, Bill. That's certainly one of my favourite cases from the year, actually. And I think led to some of the best headlines in the uh, trademark and copyright press that we've seen this year, using plenty of the phrases from Only Fools and Horses, which is a lot of fun for us trademark attorneys. But I do wonder if this comes down to particular facts, given how closely related the dinner show was uh, to the actual show. So um, I say, I wonder if any cases in the future will follow a similar finding. Now, um, I'm also going to move on to another one of this year's most high profile cases. It must be because uh, copyright is, is particularly sexy, I think, Bill. Uh, but um, they tend to make the headlines. And this one is um, Ed Sheeran uh, versus Chokri. So the background to this case, grime artist Sammy Chokri and his co-writer Ross O'Donoghue alleged 
that the post-chorus section of Ed Sheeran's very well-known song, Shape of You, the well-known uh, phrase, O-I, 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 um, was included in that song. The allegation was that was copied uh, from the hook of the defendant song, um, O-Y. And um, we don't have it here, but it has a similar sort of theme, O-Y, O-Y, O-Y. And we can see some of the similarities there, I suppose. O-Y, 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 O-Y. Um, anyway, in an attempt to clear his name after um, Sammy Chokri made an allegation of infringement, um, Sheeran sought to prove that his work was actually original and that it originated from sources other than O-Y. Moving to the decision, taking all the facts into account, the High Court, in fact, ruled that Ed Sheeran had not heard the O-Y song and, in any case, did not deliberately copy the O-I phrase. The judge concluded that whilst there were similarities, there were also significant differences between the O-Y hook and the O-I phrase. Analyzing the musical elements, uh, elements of Shape of You, there was compelling evidence to show that the O-I phrase originated from sources other than O-Y. In relation to the alleged copying, the court could not concretely find that Ed Sheeran had accessed either on his own or if someone else had showed him the O-Y song. And since the defendants had failed to establish that Ed Sheeran had copied the O-I phrase, the evidential burden did not shift because the evidence of similarities and access to the song was insufficient overall to prove copying, whether conscious or subconscious. So Ed Sheeran was successful and a cost award award made in his favor. Now, an eye-watering interim payment of £916,000 was awarded to Ed Sheeran against the defendants in this case, which I think illustrates the potentially high costs which are often associated with uh, copyright proceedings for particularly high-value claims. Because we've got to bear in mind, if uh, Chokri was successful, um, the, the award may have been quite significant given the success of that particular song. So whilst £900,000 does seem like quite a lot um, for a cost award, it's perhaps maybe proportionate. I don't know what you think, Bill, to the value of the potential compensation that may have been awarded if they were successful. Now, it's you know, looking at the IPEC, it is a big difference, um, but obviously the rewards you uh, can obtain in the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court is much less. I mean, yes, I, I agree with that. I, mean, I, I, I think those costs probably are proportionate given that both sides will have used very expensive King's Council and um, it, it, the case had clear ramifications for the rest of the musical industry. I mean, uh, the number of cases which come before the High Court uh, um, every two or three years in relation to allegations of plagiarism are, are, are very high. And it's not, it's not just in the UK courts, but also in the, U, in the US courts. And decision in the High Court, although not binding on a US court, nevertheless is persuasive. So these cases are important. Um, and therefore, uh, it's not surprising uh, that a very wealthy uh, recording artists like Ed Sheeran, who's one of the wealthiest in the world, uh, um, wouldn't be entitled to spend as much money as he needed to, uh, to protect his copyright. 
it should be borne in mind that in the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, there is a cost cap of £60,000. So even if you've spent £900,000 on your on your successful claim, 60 is the maximum you're going to get back, even if you spent £100,000. There's always going to be that uh, overhang. But on the, uh, on the other side, the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court uh, has a quick, cheap and cheerful process. So you're going to spend a lot less in any event than you spend in the High Court. And it'll give you a, a quick, rough and ready remedy uh, if that's what you want. And if you are suing and you're not completely confident you're going to succeed, at least you know how much you're going to be in for, uh, for an order for damp for costs to the other side. That's £60,000. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Now, jumping from copyright, we're going to move to uh, the final topic for today's podcast, which is designs. Although we're going to kind of stick to a similar theme in that it also deals with um, the financial side of intellectual property infringements. Now, this is original beauty technology and G4K fashion uh, and is a decision from the High Court, which just, I wouldn't say even snuck in. It was right at the end of 2021, so December 2021. So just before the end of last year, although it's still worth discussing, I think as it offers a particularly rare insight into an award of additional damages in design cases. We don't get much of those. So the background in this case is, uh, well, the better known um, claimant as House of CB is a British fashion retailer. Uh, The defendant Opoly was founded in 2015 and is a global fashion brand selling affordable women's clothing and shoes on an international basis. In 2016, Opoly launched a range of bandage-type style garments, uh, which closely mirrored those of the earlier designs owned by House of CB. Back in April 2021, the court found that seven of those 20 designs did infringe. Unfortunately, uh, following the infringement hearing, the parties failed to reach a settlement on damages, which then led to an inquiry hearing in October 2021. In reaching his decision on quantification of the damages, the judge applied uh, the sort of well-known test set out in Ultrafame and Eurocell, which set out a few general principles. One, that there is uh, a general rule, or the general rule, should we say, is that the measure of damages is to be as far as possible that a sum of money will put the claimant in the same position as he would have been in if he had not sustained the wrong, The claimant can recover loss, which was foreseeable, caused by the wrong, and not excluded from recovery by public or social policy. And where a claimant has exploited his patent, or the design as the case may be here, by manufacture and sale, he can claim lost profit on sales by the defendant that he would have made otherwise, lost profit on his own sales to the extent that he was forced by the infringement to reduce his own price, and a reasonable royalty on sales by the defendant, which would have not been made. So the parties largely agreed on the approach to calculating lost profit damages. And the judge concluded that for every 100 sales the defendant made, 20% of those sales were lost by the claimant. This resulted in a total award of £74,827 in lost profits. Now, He also awarded a reasonable royalty. And in awarding that reasonable royalty, the judge had to consider a hypothetical agreement that would have been reached based on what we call a notional license to use House of CB's unregistered design rights. Now, this is not particularly straightforward as neither party had ever entered into a comparable agreement to license their designs. And often that can be quite 
useful uh, because the judge can look back at those agreements and use those as a precedent for forming his decision on damages awardable. But we didn't have that here. So in reaching his decision, the judge assessed factors, numerous factors, but a couple of those included pricing practices generally and normal models of business. And looking at that, he concluded that a further £75,276 should be awarded to Original Beauty, equating to about 10% of the defendant's sales or about £4,000 per design. Now, in design infringement matters, the court can also award additional damages. This has the aim uh, of acting as a deterrent to prevent the defendant and perhaps other third parties from infringing the rights holder's designs. But it's quite unusual and certainly quite unusual to see significant sums. Now here, the defendant had previously been told by the claimant to stop using the claimant's images as an example to send to their own factories. And the resultant was the copying of the designs. But uh, the defendant failed to do so on numerous occasions, leading to the manufacture and sale of infringing designs over a period of four years, which the court found amounted to a clear flagrant infringement. Based on those facts, the judge awarded supplementary damages in the sum of £300,000. Now, in calculating the additional award, the judge noted a dearth of previous case law, but he did rely on several examples, with uplifts ranging significantly, uh, but not uncommonly they were more than double the damages award. Now, as far as I'm aware, uh, this is one of the largest amounts ever awarded in additional damages. And when you look at the table of additional damages that the judge relied on, quite often the uh, the actual award for damages or the direct award for damages is quite low, a few hundred pounds or a few thousand pounds. So an uplift of 200%, maybe even more, is not particularly astounding. But here, um, he applied the same Sort of notion and applied at double that of the, of the actual award and that derived at a fairly lumpy sum of £300,000. Now I think there's a word of caution here because whilst the case provides rights holder with some very helpful guidance on additional damages each case will still rest on its own facts and uh, I don't know if you think Bill but I don't know if necessarily this will always be followed in additional damages cases so I do think some caution should probably be um, uh, uh, taken uh, when looking at this case as precedent uh, for a calculation of additional damages. I think you're right. I think the, uh, following uh, the original beauty case, I suspect there's, it's going to be a, quite a long time before the court is prepared to grant uh, a, a, another significant award uh, of additional damages. Now, I'd just like to thank you, Bill, for uh, neatly summarising the cases uh, and your time today. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.